done. Good news. Jesus' life was a new beginning for the whole world. He came to make right that which was wronged, to make straight that which was crooked, to heal the lame and to give sight to the blind. He did this to show what kind of new beginning people would have on the other side of the cross. Sinners would then become set free from the bonds of sin because Jesus would become sin for us. Unpayable debts would be paid by the costly blood of Jesus. God's enemies would be made friends. Children of wrath would become children of God. The hopeless are given hope and the dead are granted life. God gives us this mercy by the word of his promise through the life-changing work that Jesus did for God's people at the cross. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Psalm 78, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which, have heard, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told of us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell, them, tell, but tell to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh, and his strength and his wondrous works that he has Rise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And read verses 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll continue reading in Psalm 78 verses 65 through 72, together as a congregation. Psalm 78, verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. 
bow together in prayer. Father, we now come into your presence to hear your word, and we thank you that you speak to us from your word, you're talking to us, you're teaching us, you're encouraging us, you're correcting us, but the one thing is sure, you love us and you do only what is good for us. We pray that you would help us to emulate what the psalm is calling us to this morning, and it would be a driving, uh, a driving call to us to wake up if we're sleepy and serve the Lord by teaching our children. So bless our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are uh, done with the book of James, and uh, we're going to spend the month of October once again talking about the family and children. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 78. It is the second longest psalm in the Psalter. And it is a didactic psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. It's written like a proverb. In fact, he says that. He uses the word parable and the word riddle. It is a proverbial kind of psalm. There aren't many like that, but this one is that way. And it's about teaching the next generation, our children. As I wrote in the live stream email, I'm sure most of you don't read that anymore. Uh, Every man is like Adam. He is a gardener. And his garden is his wife. Song of Solomon tells us that in Song of Solomon chapter 4. And he sows seed in the garden, and fruit comes forth. And just like a garden, the garden has to be weeded and tended and cared for as these plants grow. And they have to be watched over. And if one neglects them, then the fruit will spoil. The vegetables will be no good. And so we're called to take care of our families. Psalm uh, 78 is uh, long, and it can be tedious at some times. It comes in a chiastic form. I'm not going to lay it out for you this morning, but there's a chiasm. And the first and last sections, of course, match. The first section is calling us to train the next generation. The last section is about what God does. And so if I'm correct and it's a chiasm, then we're supposed to end up being like God. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 78. And it's a masculine of Asaph. And a masculine is a, a, a word for wisdom. It's a word that's used a lot in the book of Proverbs. So this is wisdom. And verses 1 through 8, as Hyde read to us, they go together. But I just want to look at the first two verses. He says, Listen, O my people, 
to my instruction. That's the word Torah. Listen to my instruction. Bow down your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter a riddle from of old. Now, if you would just uh, glance down to the end of the psalm, which is on page 7 in my edition. And he says in verse 65, Then Yahweh awoke as if asleep. Yahweh awoke as if asleep like a warrior overcome by wine. Now, first part says, bow your ear down, listen to what I'm saying. The last part says, oh, Yahweh was bowed down, and now he's getting up. So what we're called to do in the first section is what Yahweh is doing in the last section. It's a bold metaphor. Because we know from Psalm 121 that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't get tired. Yet he's pictured as being asleep. And not just being asleep, but he's asleep like a warrior who's been out to battle and fighting a hard battle. And he comes home and he sits down and he relaxes and gets out a glass of wine. And he drinks his glass of wine and falls asleep. It's the picture of Abraham who when the new world was created, he planted a vineyard. And he was a gardener, as well as being the king, given the authority to take man's life. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of its wine, and it says, and he became drunk. Now, I'm sorry for that translation in your Bible, because it is not correct. We won't take the time to show why it's not correct this morning, but let me just tell you, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word drink, the word drunk, and the word to drink just enough is all the same. It's the context that tells you. So, Abraham drank enough, and he took off his clothes, like people do when they go to bed, and he slept. And his son came in and saw him and mocked him, and his two other sons went backwards to cover him up with a blanket. Abraham did nothing wrong. And when he arose, he cursed his grandson. In Psalm 78, when God arises from this sleep he blesses his people and he gives to them the tribe of judah the mount zion of the heights like in heaven and he gives to them david who tended sheep but he took him to tend his people and he tended his people god's people with integrity and with skill ah now Just as Abraham had a vineyard, so that's the picture of a garden. And every man has a garden who's married, and every wife is a garden 
Seed is sown and fruit is produced. And one is called in the first part of the psalm to make sure the next generation knows the mighty deeds of the Lord, the wonderful deeds of the Lord, the marvelous deeds of the Lord. And all of those words are sweeping through this idea that this is just downright extraordinary. Right? Because whoever saw a river divided with walls on both sides, heaping up, heaping up, and you walk right, who saw that? Well, Israel did. So, Make sure your kids know these extraordinary deeds, these wonders, these marvels that God has done in history. Then when you get down to the end, God wakes up. He chooses David. And now every man and every woman who's married in this room is the David. You're called to shepherd your children with integrity and skill. This psalm has one little simple message. And that is that God has done these extraordinary things and people saw them. And there's no question about who did them. That's not the question. But the question is, will those extraordinary wonders change you? Will they cause you to think, my goodness, if somebody can heap waters up like that, my goodness, if somebody can turn the whole Nile into blood, what kind of, what kind of person is that? Oh, you know, I better listen to him. And more extraordinarily, here you have a group of about two million people oppressed by the greatest nation on earth at the time, bowed down under slavery, living uh, what we would say is a miserable life. And here God comes by ten signs, and pretty soon the people are saying, send them out, get them out of here. Extraordinary things. And out they go. And they cross over the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai, and on the way, there's no water, and God shows them water. On the way... There's no food, and God has them eat angels' food. The doors of heaven are opened like there's a storehouse up there. And what rains down from it is manna, angels' food. And up comes a mighty wind that blows into their camp quail. These are marvels. These are wonders. Now, if you were a saved people, you came out of slavery, and you marched out to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God says to you, look, 
I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he lays out before you ten commandments and gives you a covenant. Wouldn't you also say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Most absolutely you would say that because your life has been miserable and sunken down and no hope and all of a sudden you're free. And all that this God has done, he's done for you and you saw it. And wouldn't you think when all of that has happened that you would want your kids to know that? You know, you take a two-year-old, a three-year-old, yeah, their eyes see it, but they don't understand it. So now you have to shepherd them. You have to train them. You have to explain to them as they grow and grow and grow. What does all of this mean? So that just as you have been changed by what you have seen God do, your children will be changed by what they hear that God has done. That's Psalm 78. And the message is, let these wonders transform you so that you will keep his covenant and obey his commandments. Well, you know, most of us would think, well, you know, if I just saw things like that, I'd be more enthusiastic about serving God too. In fact, I, I had a friend who would repeatedly tell me, you know, why doesn't God do something like that today so that I could see it and it would make me all the more fervent to serve him? This friend of mine was not very fervent to serve him. He didn't lead a, a, a very good life. No, he was a believer but he didn't lead a very good life. Psalm 78 then recounts Israel's history. This is, a, this is a history psalm. And it recounts it from the perspective of two, well, it's Israel, but it's two groups of people. There's the group of people who are in the Exodus days, and then there's the group of people down here that are in the Judges days, down when uh, Samuel was prophesying, and Eli, and guys like that. And what it is, is it's a call to think about these wonders. And the wonders are set before you in two different groups. One group has to do with uh, the waters being spread apart and the people coming out and going out into the wilderness and wanting water and wanting food and wanting meat and how God supplies. That's one section. Then you come down towards the end of the psalm and you have another section. The other section is first looking at not the waters being separated and the people walking through them, but now it's looking about being back in Egypt and the ten plagues that finally causes Pharaoh and the people to say, get out, get out! Only He only gives us seven of them. And things in this psalm are not in chronological order, so if you're looking for that, you're looking at the wrong psalm. 
This is a wisdom psalm teaching a lesson that he wants people to understand. This is a psalm that we need today. I picked up a book yesterday because somebody sent me a, a YouTube video. And I could say I watched it, but I did listen to it. And it was from Calvin University. And it wasn't good. And so I listened to the professor. And uh, she had a lot of things to say that were not very positive about you. That is, if you're evangelical. And so I, I, had been, uh, I had been told about one of her books. This morning I ordered the other one. But yesterday I started reading this book. I had it, but I hadn't read it yet. So I started reading it. It's called um, Jesus and John Wayne. How Evangelicals Corrupted the Faith and Fractured a Nation. And of course, you can guess it. It's all against evangelicals, and particularly if you're a white male evangelical. In this book, a person who claims they're Christian takes the idea of gender differences and just mocks it. Even though when I open my Bible, it's just, it sticks out like a sore thumb, does it not? And the idea of homosexual and lesbians, no big deal. Now, this is the world our children are coming into. I didn't grow up in that kind of world. And you people are older like me. You didn't grow up in that kind of world either. I mean, the seeds were there. It was sprouting. It was growing. It was inevitable. And, uh, you know, I have my complaints against the evangelical church as well. But they're not on that side. They're on the side that the evangelical church has not kept the word of God. And so, you know, your kids are going to grow and you're going to release them out of your house and this is the world they're going to come into. And it's a world of a whole lot of people who say they're reformed, say they believe the cross, Jesus died for my sins, but what they're teaching from the Bible is just a whole different story. How are we going to correct that? Well, first of all, we have to pray that God would help us to correct it, that he'd be gracious to us. And we have to correct it by being warned. This is a danger. It's a real danger. And our kids could be lost to it, as some kids are lost to, to it already. That's why I pray for the millennials. They're lost to it. They've been sucked in. They've been pulled down. So Ephesians chapter 1 says, Children, all children in here, everybody's a child, so listen. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Well, in Exodus, that you might live long on the land, in Ephesians, in Ephesians, that it may be well 
for you and that you may live long on the earth. This Psalm 78 is important if you want your kids to live well and long. If you don't care about it, then don't worry about it. But of course, all of us do care. Because when that little baby's born and you hold that kid in your arms, there's nobody smarter, brighter, more perfect than that kid. But unfortunately, that kid grows into somebody who's fussy, who's crabby. That kid grows into somebody who objects to what you want. And they whine. And Ephesians says, oh, kids, you need to obey your parents. Okay, so Psalm 78 is saying, okay, this is what you need to do. Because kids can and do obey their parents. Not all the time, but to the extent that you require it and to the extent that you reinforce it, they will obey. Now, so Psalm 78 then picks up the idea of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which is picked up in Hebrews. The concept is that a good father, and of course, we're not excluding women here, <laughs> good mothers, just the same. A good father will discipline his children just like God scourges every son he receives. So when we look at Psalm 78, what does God do? God scourges his people. Yet at the same time, God's name as revealed in Exodus chapter 34 is quite something. He's a God of compassion. He's a God who forgives. He's a God who's slow to anger, as Psalm 78 will tell us. He's a God, however, that does not excuse sin. He forgives sin, but he holds accountable the guilty to the third and the fourth generation. You know, we live in a time where, uh, well, we don't much believe in the miraculous. We believe in science. We don't much see God causing the east wind to blow and bringing the south wind through the heavens. We don't much look at life that way. But there's a big storm that passed through Florida. And God brought the storm. And God killed the people he wanted to kill. And God destroyed the homes and the livings and all kinds of stuff of people that he wanted to destroy. And if you think that is incorrect, then you just don't believe the Bible. God is sovereign. For Christians, this is all done out of love. But for unbelievers, it's done out of God's retribution 
justice. So, Psalm 78 then has the end and the beginning, and then two sections that talk about Israel's history and the wonders that God does, and right smack dab in the middle is the fact that Israel remained rebellious, Israel remained stubborn, Israel did not believe God, even though you can find lots of places where it says Israel did believe God, but this is the message of Psalm 78. Psalm 78, then, is a taking a whole lot of time for the introduction, right? Listen, O my people, to my instruction, which is a verbal form of Torah. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, bow down, listen closely. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter a riddle from of old. And so you, you can already see me just from what I've said. How is it that somebody could look and see God's mighty hand at work and then say, oh no, I won't obey? When they know good and well from what they've seen, he could crush them in a moment. How is that? That's a riddle. It's a dark saying. How can that be? That's the question. Uh, which we have heard and uh, known and our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell them to the generation to come the <clears throat> praises of Yahweh and his strength and his extraordinary works that he has done. So there it is. The next generation, what I'm going to tell them is I watched God, and what God did elicited praise. Wow! Look at that God! I'm going to tell the next generation because this is God, and he's not one, someone to trifle with. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell this to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and a rebellious generation, a generation that did not a generation that did not uh, prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. 
So there it is. What happens, and it's, it's true of Christians too, I know that you can find all kinds of verses that stretch out and tell what God's going to do for you. That's all true. And I know that in the end, the good that we accomplish is because of God's work in our lives. But you see the way this is written, it's written of something you have to do. You have to prepare your heart. You have to establish your heart. You have to talk to yourself. You have to say, oh, this is God. Look what he's done. I'm going to trust him. I need to trust him. Of course, once you make that decision and you prepare your heart, I'm not going to look elsewhere. I'm going to look right here. Once you make that decision and you prepare your heart, then what you want is a faithful spirit. You want to believe God and, and do what he says. And that's when you call out to God, help me, help me, I know, I know my weakness. Okay, so when it comes to rearing children, we all know that we're just a tad lazy. Oh, the kid's a little crabby. Just ignore it, it'll go away. But it doesn't go away. Oh, the kid's dropping food on the floor. Oh, what's the difference? It's kind of cute. You know, but when they're teenagers, they'll be dropping something else. So you say, yeah, I believe the scriptures. I set my heart. I'm going to establish it on God's word, on who he is. Now, we drop down to verse 9, and it says, The sons of Ephraim were archers, equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the battle. Now, we're going to read the rest of this, but just let me, let, let me say we don't know exactly what this is. It, the psalm, when you get to the end, talks clear down in Eli's day when the Israelites did go out to battle against the Philistines and they were chased and 30,000 men died. It could be that. Or there's a story in Targum Psalms that talks about Israel calculating the year for deliverance because, after all, remember, they were told, Abraham was told, 430 years, then you're going to come out. So people are calculating, when are we coming out of Egypt? And some men miscalculated and went to battle, and they were turned back. Well, probably the safe thing to do is you know, enjoy the story from Targum Psalms. We don't know if it's true or not, but to fit the psalm together, we say, oh, oh so this is stretching clear down to where the psalm's going to end up, and it's saying, okay, they were well equipped, and they went out, and they were turned back. They lost the battle. Why? They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law, in the Torah. Remember, when you see the word law, it, it can just be the law as prohibitions and so forth, the Ten Commandments. But the Torah is the first five books of Moses. So it's all kinds of instruction. 
And they forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them, his extraordinary works. He, he wrought wonders, extraordinary works, before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up in a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and with all the light of a fire by night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and he gave, uh, he gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like a river. So here's these extraordinary things that God has done. And you see two different rock occasions, and you know that one of them comes out of Exodus chapter 17, and one of them comes out of Numbers chapter 20. Both times the rock was struck, one time it was supposed to be spoken to. But I mean, you see this huge rock, and it splits apart, and out flows water for two million people. What are you going to say? This is God. Do your kids know that? Do you tell them this really happened? You have to tell them. Because, you know, we live in the movie age, the fictitious age. You can make all kinds of stuff come on the screen, and they know it's only fake. It's not real. But this is real. This is what God did. And so he's telling us, teach this to your kids. This is what they saw. Verse 17. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their hearts, they put God to the test, saying, uh, put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he produce meat for his people? Now, think about that. I mean, they've been brought out of slavery, and now they're mocking God, and they're complaining. If you read in Exodus chapter 14, they're complaining. In Exodus chapter 15, they're complaining. Exodus chapter 16, they're complaining. Exodus chapter 17, they're complaining. Numbers chapter 11, they're complaining. And they're saying much the same thing every time when they feel like they're missing out or something or there's a shortage. Why did you bring us out here so that we could die? We could be back home in Egypt, sitting by the flesh pots and eating onions and leeks and all that good stuff. But you've brought us out here to kill our kids and our wives. God who delivered them from slavery. This is what they're saying. Okay, well, yeah, we saw that he could bring forth water from a rock, but can he really set a table of meat for us? 
Well, it's one thing to ask God for something. That's fine and dandy. We're told by Paul, make your requests made known unto God. But that's not what they were doing. They were demanding and complaining. Our life's not what we want it to be. So you see, you look at these big events that God has done, these extraordinary deeds, and you teach your children, hey, look what God has done for you. Are you really going to complain? Is that what you really want to do? Therefore, Yahweh heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also, uh, also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and trust in his salvation. So here you get the point. God's brought them out. <laughs> they're, they're not slaves working so hard now. God's brought them out. But they're, they're not believing God. They're not trusting in this salvation. If he delivered them, will he provide? Well, they're not sure that he will provide. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he, uh, by his power, he directed the south wind. When he <clears throat> rained meat upon them like the uh, dust, winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall into the midst of their camp, round about their dwelling places. And if you, if you read if you read Numbers chapter 11, it, it actually fell around the outside of the camp. They had to go out and get it. But it was piled up two feet deep. Wow. Didn't have to have a shotgun or anything, Mark. So they ate, and they were well filled, and their desire he gave to them before they had satiated their desire while their food was still in their mouth the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel so God gave them what they want because of the way they asked, God disciplined the nation severely. He scourged them. Well, okay, 
if you get to the end of the psalm and you say, okay, the Lord rose up and this is what he did, and the whole psalm is being squished together and this is what we're supposed to do, then we have, a, we have an idea. Yeah, we're supposed to be like God. When our kids complain like that and they're not grateful, what do you do? Oh, honey, you don't need to be like that. Don't say such things. No, that doesn't change a kid's heart. But a little application on the backside that causes enough pain, like Israel, it changes a person's heart. Notice what it says now. In 32 through 39, he's going to tell how, okay, God is doing all this, but the people didn't change. And, of course, we know the only true change comes when? Well, it comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus says, yeah, the manna that your fathers ate, they died. But I'm the true bread of God. He who eats my flesh will live forever. Of course, that's a metaphor for trusting in what Christ has done for us. That, that's what it is. And our sins are forgiven. But that's not all it is. You see, because lots of people can say, well, yeah, 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 I believe the cross. And, and here in just a minute, we're going to see that even God was seduced, deceived by his own people. That's another bold metaphor. So people say, well, yeah, yeah, I believe in the cross. But did they come to meet with God? Oh, no, 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 they don't have any mind for that. Did they come to sit at his table and eat? No, 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 they don't have any mind for that. See? We don't necessarily believe in God and trust in his salvation either. We cannot do the simplest things that he's called us to do. Come meet with God's people, hear his word, and sit at his table. This is just a tremendous psalm. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. In other words, they saw it, they knew it was God, but in the end, their heart was not prepared. They didn't believe it. It didn't transform them. So he brought their days to an end in vanity, futility, and their years in sudden terror. Now, probably what he's talking about here is he's moving down Israel, going through the wilderness or at Mount Sinai, and they're going to Kadesh Barnea, and this is the 10th time they've tested God, and God said, okay, that's it. All those from 20 years old and up are going to die. So their lives ended up in futility, dying in the wilderness, and sudden terror came upon them. When he killed them, then they sought him. They sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. But... They deceived him with their mouth and lied to him 
with their tongue. Here's that deception. The word deceived here is for a man seducing a virgin to lay with him before he's married. This is the people saying, oh, yes, 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 Lord. You're our rock. You're our redeemer. You are the greatest. Look at all these things you do. But it's just, it's not just so many words. It's flat out deception. For their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. They didn't keep his covenant. The word faithful here just means what it means. They didn't believe in his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not, <clears throat> did not arouse all of his wrath. Thus, he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes and does not return. So right here in the middle of all this is, is the centerpiece. They saw all this, but, but they didn't change. Okay, so... We have to teach our children. This is what God has done. This is who God is. Look what he's done for you. And the emphasis lies not on judgment, even though he did judge them. The emphasis lies on compassion. He gave them more and more time. He didn't destroy them completely. He restrained his anger, his wrath. And he's using the metaphor here in this section of a man and a wife. And now we're talking about God, so he's on the man's side, and we're talking about God's people, so they're on the wife's side. And they're not faithful and deceptive. And, of course, we, knows what, we know what happens in marriages like that, don't we? You can lay out all the commandments. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't get divorced. Don't do this. Don't do that. But when a marriage that's supposed to be like this is like this, we know what's going to happen. There's going to be a divorce. And that's what's going to happen with God and his people. He's going to reject them in the end. You're not going to be my people. Well, so then, from verses 40 down to verse 55, we won't take time to read it. We go through, uh, down through, we'll, we'll say through verse 51, we go through another scenario. And this time we're talking about Israel and uh, <coughs> the plagues that came upon the Egyptians by which God delivered them. They saw all of these signs. And then it says in verse 52, he, he judged the Egyptians, but, but he led forth his own people like sheep, and he guided them in the wilderness 
like a flock. And he led them safely so that they did not fear. But the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to this hill country, which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them, and he apportioned them for an inheritance by measure, uh, and made the <clears throat> and made the tribes of Israel uh, dwell in their tents. And so when you when you go through the second, it's just a second round. You go through the plagues that they saw, these wonders, these miracles, and still they weren't faithful to God. But here's God. He's compassionate, and he takes his people like a shepherd, and he leads them through the wilderness, and he brings them to the Jordan River, and they cross over the Jordan River, and what do they see? They see more miracles, like the city of Jericho falling, and all these nations that are dispossessed so that they can come in and dwell in their houses, in their tents. That's what God did. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God, and did not keep his uh, did not keep his testimonies. That's what verses fifty five and following tell us. So you just see this great picture, and then comes the conclusion, and we'll just read it, and then we will finish. Look down at verse sixty five. Then Yahweh awoke as if asleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. And he drove his adversaries backwards. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of uh, Ephraim. Now, this is just talking about choosing them for where his house is going to be. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his tabernacle like the heights, like the earth which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and his... Uh, <clears throat> And took him from among the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with the suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his heritage. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and uh, and he guided them skillfully with his hands. So you start over here, you go through a cycle twice, but you end up over here coming into the promised land. And into the promised land, God drives people out, and time passes, time passes, and uh, you come to David by God's power, as we've seen in Chronicles, having defeated all of his adversaries around him.
and then David is used by God to set forth the plans for the temple, the sanctuary, and David has orchestrated all the worship that's going to take place at the sanctuary in praise of God's mighty deeds, in praise of who God is, in praise of the salvation of bringing Israel all the way from slavery, bondage in Egypt, all the way to this place to freely worship God at his temple. And what does David do during his reign for 40 years? Well, he's not perfect. He sins. That's not in the purview of the psalmist. What he does is he leads the nation faithfully. We end with David in the psalm. And of course, Jesus is David's son. The Pharisees were asking from Jesus a sign. Oh, yeah, we'll believe in you if you just give us a sign. Of course, he's done all of these miracles. And in John, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the religious leaders cannot refute it. They know it's true. So what do they decide to do? See it as a wonder, a marvel that transforms them? No, they decide to put him to death. They're asking for a sign. And Jesus says, there's not going to be a sign to this sinful and adulterous generation there's only one sinful and adulterous generation in the Bible. That's the generation that did not choose Christ when he was on the earth. No sign's going to be given unto it except the sign of Jonah. And of course, Jonah went into the sea, swallowed into the belly of the whale, and he abode there and prayed for salvation in Jonah chapter 2, and he was vomited up onto dry land. So Jesus died, and he went into the belly of the earth, and three days later, he arose from the dead. Now, we can teach our kids from the Bible, and we should, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to emphasize the power, the might, the marvel, the extraordinary ways that God works and teach our kids. That's the kind of God we have. He works for you like that. But of course, it culminates in Jesus Christ. And there's no more extraordinary miracle than raising from the dead. And let's put it this way. When we stick your body in the ground, and that's a big assumption on my part because most of you will be sticking my body in the ground. When we stick your body in the ground, you're dead and you're not going to do nothing except rot. Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it again. So we talk about the Spirit raising Jesus. We talk about the Father raising Jesus. But Jesus talks about Jesus raising Jesus. There's no more extraordinary, marvelous, wonderful miracle like that. And anybody that can grasp it Anybody that would grasp it 
would say, hey, I want that Jesus. If he can do that, he can do that for me. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Father, we've only partially dealt with Psalm 78. You became so angry with your people that you destroyed the tabernacle in Shiloh and let your strength, your ark, be taken by the Philistines, your beauty, your ark taken by the Philistines. You let yourself be taken away and humiliated on account of faithless Israel. But then you woke up and you built through David and Solomon a temple whereby you dwelt among your people. But we thank you that Jesus has come. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. No one has seen the Father except the one who dwells in the bosom of the Father, and he has explained him. What a marvelous work you have done at the cross in a Savior who was taken away in death like the ark was taken away from the tabernacle. You went into enemy territory. You died. For us and then you had authority to come forth from the dead we thank you you were handed over for our transgression and you were raised because of our justification we bless and praise and thank you in your name we pray amen